Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Mark Graben. It is episode 463 for November 16th, 2022. We're joined today by Jim Benson. We are talking about his most recent book, The Collaboration Equation, Strong Professionals, Strong Teams, Strong Delivery. And when I say talking about the book, I mean, it's, it was the, the reason to have the conversation. I mean, we, we, it, it's a conversation inspired by the book. How's that? As, as Jim and I often do, we have a really freewheeling conversation. Jim has a lot of really insightful things to say, and I think you'll enjoy the discussion about leadership and culture and teamwork and collaboration and what it takes to really build that in an organization of any type. So if you would like a link to the book and more information about Jim and his work, you can go to leanblog.org slash 463 or take a look in the show notes if you're listening in a podcast. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. We are joined by a returning guest today, our pal Jim Benson, who was previously a guest on episodes 155, 401. He was a guest for episode number four of My Favorite Mistake and episode 25 of the Lean Whiskey podcast with me and Jamie. So, uh, Jim, even with all of even with all of that, welcome back. We're going to talk again. Thank you. Was I really only on one Lean Whiskey? I think so. It could be wow. my mistake. Speaking of mistakes, <laughs> did we do it twice? I'd have to go. People can Google that. I guess they can Google that. Um, Jim, Jim and I, we, we, we talk a lot and we ran the risk of, as I said to him before we start, started recording, if I don't hit start record, we're going to not end up with an episode. So yep. here we are. We will have another episode, episode, an episode. <laughs> what is that? An episode <laughs> would be like, an, we, we talk about the opposite of what we believe. It, it could be, or it could be kind of what, uh, uh, like, um, uh, what any of those counterpoint shows are on cnn yeah. that could be an episode where they're you just say, in opposition to each other what do they t- say you know you, you you don't understand your side of the debate if you can't articulate your opponent's side so we'll do an episode someday about like you know why you shouldn't win limit whip and i cannot that's right. today <laughs> um but jim is uh i hopefully we'll, we'll stop goofing around and i will stop getting words mixed up here jim is and I'm not going to just say you can Google him as we were talking about. <laughs> but Jim is a pioneer in applying lean and Kanban to knowledge work. He is the creator of Personal Kanban, is a co-author of a book with that title, Personal Kanban, Mapping Work, Navigating Life, which is a winner of the Shingo Research and Publication Award. Jim's other books include Why Plans Fail, Why Limit Whip, and Beyond Agile. He's the CEO of Modus Cooperandi and the the co-founder of Modus Institute. I got through most of that okay, including Modus Cooperandi. You you did. That that puts you in in august company. Um, But we're going to talk today. I think, well, this is the intent. We're going to talk about all kinds of things. But Jim's newest book, I'm going to hold it up for those who are watching on YouTube. It is titled The Collaboration Equation, Strong Professionals, Strong Teams, Strong Delivery. So you've been you've been hitting the gym, <laughs> bench pressing the post-it notes. <laughs> how much does uh, a giant? Yeah, we can figure that out sometime. A giant stack of post-it notes. How much that would weigh? But 
we are asking, um, you know, so we're gonna let me let me quit goofing around and, and, and get into you know the the serious uh, serious topics of of the book here. But we're we're gonna have fun as we talk about this. Um, the collaboration equation. So I mean, let's let's unpack some of the the phrases in the title here. I mean, how how do you define? How have you come to understand collaboration? It's a word we all know, but what what does it really mean? Right, uh, collaboration is a word like culture uh, that we kick around a lot. And that no one actually says, how do we do that? Like systematically, how, how do we do that? Uh, and uh, the way I approach it in the book is I go all the way back to high school when I was an angry punk rocker. And I start looking at like, what did collaboration mean then? And then how did how did I see that as, as, as I went forward through through all these careers that I've had? And what I realized was where teams worked really well, they had a culture that underwrote continuous improvement, that underwrote respect for a people, that underwrote all of those things that we talk about in Lean, but don't actually provide a structure for. But these groups actually had created a structure. So this book is about that. Like, how do we, how do we have a flexible learning environment that is predictable, that lets us know how to act and when to act? So I, I I have to ask about the angry punk rocker days. I mean, what is the culture of a successful punk rock band similar to a software company in terms of some of the things you're describing? Is there a culture of continuous improvement, for example? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you, you know, let's just say that you're like we were, you're a bunch of kids in the middle of Nebraska. And all of a sudden you decide, okay, we are now AMA. Or, or you know, or the boat people, or any of the bands that we called ourselves, uh, we're now this band. What do we do? Well, we have to create a product. So that means that you have to learn the production of the product, play play instruments, write songs, be able to record them, be able to make tapes or albums. Then you need to learn distribution because we were in Grand Island, Nebraska. It's not like we had, you know, we, we couldn't go to CBGBs. <laughs> we, we, we like had to invent uh, a global distribution sense system for that. And in order to do that, we had to like say, okay, so how do we talk to somebody with no internet? Because there wasn't an internet in 1980, you know, just wasn't. Um, how do we talk to somebody in Paris? And, and get them tapes and stuff. How do we trade those? And so we, we found all of these networks and we, we learned like crazy. Uh, and if you go now and you read any of the books out there uh, by any of the aging punks, none of them say me, 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 me. They all say, this is how we did these things. Uh, and the way that most punks toured is they would go to towns and sleep on the floors of other punks. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like you went and stayed at the Ritz or the, you know, <laughs> you, yeah. you, you literally were sleeping on other people's floors for better or for worse. Bob, Bob Mould has great stories about what it was like doing, doing all that stuff. So then and maybe this happens in the evolution of, let's say a software startup company. When, the environment changes, how much does that change the culture? So if you're the, the punk band that hits a big and you now are staying at the Ritz, are, are you still punk? Can a, yeah. a startup software company that gets big still be like a startup? Or are you just now, are, are you being posers? Yep. <laughs> 
and, and there and there's a lot of a lot of worry that happens about that that actually in uh the um uh Gary Oldman's character in uh, you know when he played Sid Vicious uh and they're playing in 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 your old home state of Texas uh he's you know, just broken up with Nancy apparently over the phone and he's freaking out. And so he's like, well, I'm going to be a rock star. And so he goes off and tries to do all these rock star things. Um, it, it definitely, you know, as you go forward, just like in a startup and a startup, you start off with a couple of people in a, in a basement trying to get an idea across. Then all of a sudden someone walks up and says, oh, that's good enough for a couple million dollars. And then you're like, well, I've gotten a couple million dollars now. I'm going to go buy a Tesla and I'm going to, you know, buy another tesla <laughs> different, different color for a different day of the week or when you're charging the one you drive the other that yeah that's, that's right that's two, right it's a two-bin kanban system for electric propulsion <laughs> charge i guess but but it's um it's the funny thing about it was like and most of this book is about the startups that i was working with while writing the book which was in construction and those startups were funded to the tune of billions of dollars, and they were building hospitals and skyscrapers and stuff in New York. But every new construction project is a startup. You have a new product that's usually never been built before. Like Almost every new building is unique in some way, unless you're just going out and buying kit houses, building kit houses or something. Um, so you have all of these unique elements, you have a unique owner, you have unique designers, you have a whole bunch of new, it's, it is amazing how at Turner Construction, every job site that you go to is fundamentally different culturally. It has an underlying culture of Turner, which is like of this relentless professionalism and a desire to solve problems. But above that, like the every, every job site feels different. Mm -hmm. Well, it is. I mean, there, there's this balance or conundrum in healthcare. I mean, I've heard people say, if they want a poo-poo process, they'll say, well, every patient is unique. Like, all right, sure, but we're we're all the same species. Like, I mean, there's how do you find this balance between, I mean, it, this building's unique, but it's not the first time you've built a building. And Certainly hopefully not. you're leveraging past learning of how to do it safely mm -hmm. in a way that we hope healthcare would be learning from as well. How, how do you find that balance then? Uh, and, and that's the tough thing because people are either, they're either going to go in one of two directions, either the everything's standard work, shut up and leave me alone. I've done this before. Or they're going to go in the, oh, everything's a unique, delicate flower. And it's like, no, <laughs> what life is, is it's us making plans. And those plans have either known or unknown complexities in them. And then we hit them and they blow up our standard work. So what we want to do initially is set up standard work that says, this is what we do if we encounter complexity. Mm. We don't bury it. We don't run away from it. We don't hide it. We don't try and blame other people for it. But we, you know, carpe the complexity. <laughs> and, and you go off and you say, okay, we're when we find a problem, you know, you must whip it, you know. So you, <laughs> so you know, WIP whip or WHIP whip? Either, uh, either and both. Uh, that's why the song goes on so long. <laughs> whip um, it. Question. So, so the 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 frustrating thing is that most large projects or projects at all sink because they hit complexity and people refuse to deal with it. Mm. 
And, or they just say, you know, oh, I just do whatever. And then they don't have enough standard work to give themselves the headspace to be able to deal with true complexity when it arises. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the answer is always somewhere in the middle, not at one extreme or the other. How, how do you help a team or a company? How does it become part of their culture to understand where that right middle point is? Or is there just always tension pulling you in both directions? There is, and that tension can either be a threat or it can be, you know, a propulsion system. <laughs> uh, so it can either be the tension of the noose or the tension of the rubber band that's going to, you know, run your propeller. And so in order to make it more the latter than the former, uh, we set up systems initially where we say, okay, well, first we're going to do a right environment exercise. So we're going to establish a right environment in which professionals can behave like professionals at all times. Professionals learn, professionals um, interpret, they analyze, they see when things are going to go or could go in a weird direction, and then they adjust. Strangely enough, they plan to study and adjust. (laughs) Weirdly enough, that's that's like the professional loop. Yeah. And And so if you plan, do, and study and adjust and things are going pretty well for a while, that's just fine. But then when you see something that's weird, people should be able to discuss it. If it's just discussing with our faces, flapping our mouths up and down, that tends to be unsuccessful 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we're able to set up an OBEA, a single place where the information about what is happening on the project as a whole resides, that information is usually visible, so it's not sitting there in a bunch of reports on a table, but it's like up on the walls, uh, and that stuff is is updated in real time. Then people get comfortable with the fact that change happens every day. The boards are changing every day. The conversations we're having around the boards are changing every day, and we see the problems of the people who come to work, who are working currently on, let's say, the job site. Uh, they're out there putting in the structural steel, and later on, I'm going to be putting in the woodworking. Well, the problems that they're running into today are the problems I'm going to repeat in the future unless we watch them and deal with them now. And if they're overloaded at the moment, I can come in earlier and help them out because I can see their problem. I know that it's there, and I can... If anything, I can just be another voice in the room to help find a deeper solution or whatever. Yeah. Or at least being just an outside perspective or somebody who is less invested in, let's say, for example, who's right, winners Mm -hmm. or losers within a discussion. I mean, Mm -hmm. we should be trying to avoid that. But it seems inevitable that if there's a debate or a conflict, everyone wants to win it. Do Do you help navigate through that? So not only do you help navigate through it, but it's actually a primary KPI. Uh, If uh, you know that you have achieved a right environment when you see a major problem arise and it gets solved and people go back to work and no one bursts into tears, has a big yelling match or whatever. So at the uh, Coney Island Hospital, now the Ruth Bader Ginsburg Hospital project in, in New York, 
um, just a quick story about this. At the very beginning of the project, uh, they found that when they were putting in the footings for the building, that there was a part of the uh, um, there's a part of the property that was wetter than they thought it was going to be. Uh, the, the water table was higher. The ground was more saturated than the original analysis showed that it would be. Um, usually what would happen it, at that point is just lawsuits, yelling, and and lots of strife. <laughs> right. What they did on the project was they brought in the structural engineer, the designers, and everybody else, and they redesigned those footings. Hmm. So they, they, they what, literally what, what just led, solved the problem. <laughs> so, so what what led to that? Going from strife to collaborative problem solving, if you will. Well, so we were blessed at the beginning of the project with. Uh, so one of these projects generally starts off with a couple of engineers being assigned to it. And then it goes through the estimation process and the beginning of the procurement process. And then when you move out to the trailer or slightly before you move out to the construction trailer, that's when all of the other engineers join. So we had a couple of benefits here. One was that there was a long period of time between when the project started and when it went out to the trailer. And a lot of people joined while it was still in, we'll just say a safe and professional and environment without a lot of distractions. And we were able to go through some very detailed right environment exercises with these folks to get them to say, this is what we need as professionals in order to get our jobs done. We need this information. We need stuff not to be hidden from us. We need things to be findable. We need to know what the schedule is. We need to talk often with the trades. We need blah, 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 blah. And they came up with all of these things. Um, and the leadership of that, uh, two guys named Chris and Paul, they were just very willing to give up, or I should say to share, uh, the authority which is usually hoarded on such projects out of fear. Uh, so that, from the very beginning, there was a, we are all professionals, we are all here to build a quality building, not I'm controlling this project or you're controlling you know, you're the superintendent of this. And so therefore you're controlling it. Uh, there was a lot of crosstalk. Um, and we revisited it every week. We talked literally every week. We talked about is the culture what we want? Is it what we needed? Another cool thing about this project is one of the things they decided that they needed was a dog. Uh, a dog. So they got a dog. So the dog was always running around going, I am the physical <laughs> existence of your culture. Yeah. You don't, don't screw this up. <laughs> so huh. I, um, it was, it was an agreement mm -hmm. amongst professionals to behave professionally, mm. which is as simple and as difficult as it sounds. So how much of that culture in your experience comes from the team deciding this versus the leader of the project or the CEO of the organization um, intending to create a certain culture. I'm not saying that culture can be dictated in a top-down mm -hmm. way, but I think it can be, it can be led. It can be created actively instead of just letting culture evolve. 
Yeah. Where, where, yeah. Where, where, where do you see the role of a CEO saying, here's my vision for what, what the right environment is? Right. And and uh, history is littered with uh, musical supergroups that couldn't make a single hit. Uh, <laughs> um, so it's not talent <laughs> and it's not. And, and God knows there was enough record company people who said, you know, you kids go off and make a hit record. And they didn't do that either. So so what is it that that, you know, especially in Turner's case that led to the ability of Peter Davern, the CEO, being able to say, I want the organization to be lean. I want the organization to be safe. I want the organization to have a right environment. I'm sure that every construction company CEO says the same thing. So why was it happening here? And it was happening here because of a combination of the people and the existing the existing culture. So number one, the people at Turner really respect Peter Davern. In a way, frankly, I've just never seen before because it's either like, you know, it was either like at Apple where everybody's like, ooh, Steve Jobs, he walks on water, you know, or, or <laughs> you know, it's like HP where people are like, I think that, you know, our CEO should be, you know, left on a desert island somewhere and not spoken right. to ever again. <laughs> yeah. uh, so at Turner, they had a really healthy respect for Peter. And they're like, Peter wants to see these things. How do we do them? Because they're not natural acts for construction. Mm-hmm. Respect is not something that happens on your average construction site very often. <laughs> but you can foster that and nurture that in, in different ways of like modeling respect and rewarding respect or not rewarding disrespect. You, you can. Right. But it, if you this and this is really true for healthcare too, you're in an environment where you go to work every day and you want to build the best building possible or you want to save lives. And then for that humane desire, you are met with petty bickering, horrific schedules. Um, you know, in healthcare, people are going to be throwing up on you in 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 uh um, construction, you're going to be out uh, on a on a 40 story building when it's 110 degrees out and you're literally standing in an oven. Um, uh, the workplace itself conspires to make us treat each other poorly. And so the um, uh, so let me well, you're, well, you're thinking or I was going to jump in with a question. Yeah. Um, so if the workplace is, is conspiring, how did how did that get to be and, and how do how do we change it? Okay. So um the first thing is that up front, in a calm environment, uh, before people have had chance to build a whole lot of baggage, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is not obviously that, not always possible. Right. They might already have it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh you know, get, get them while they're young and say, okay, before you have a chance to build up all this animosity, let's figure out what we, again, what we need to not fight with each other. When you go into a group that already exists, then there's uh, therapy involved. So you go into the team. And so what we'll do first is we will, you know, do a quick, 
uh, the way we do value stream mapping is we do it where we're not where you know the 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 flow of work is obviously extremely important, but it's kind of a ruse. <laughs> uh, we use it to surface where the relationships have gone sour, where people aren't collaborating well, where things are breaking down socially. And then we use that flow of work to say, look, you know, we agree that we want to create product and we have these big red stickies here that say that things are horrible here, here and here. Now, what do we need to fix these things? And usually what we will find, like literally, literally usually, <laughs> it's not hyperbole, <laughs> is that usually what we find is those things are just them saying, oh, well, let's not do that anymore. Uh, and so when you can do that, the 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 rapidity of change is so much faster than what we've said in the past. Like it takes three years to achieve change or arbitrary amount of time. I've seen teams at each other's throats completely do a 180 in less than a week when they just realize, oh, wait, we're all we're all angry and we're all angry for the same reasons. Now they can be undermined. They can have that change taken away from them, uh, and that. But that's a separate problem. I mean, that's that's interesting. It makes me think of situations where, I mean, I've seen similar things occur. I've never had the awareness or insight to think, well, okay, this mapping is a ruse. But anytime, anytime we start doing anything across departmental functional silos. Mm-hmm. And like you know, one example would be the emergency department and the laboratory, where uh-huh. they're all angry for different reasons and they're all pointing fingers at each other mm-hmm. around like one one common complaint would be, you know, the lab gets mad at the, the ER nurses who are drawing blood because they don't put the label on the tube properly and then. The barcode mm-hmm. scans don't get read and it causes problems and delays. And then the ER is mad about how slow the lab is. And then if the lab tries to give feedback, the ER says, oh, those lab people, you know, they're they're uptight. They're anal retentive. They want it all to be perfectly straight. But then when, when, when you start bringing them into their physical spaces and map the work, just even go and observe the work yep. as it flows through, I've seen people start discovering like, oh, that was just a silly misunderstanding. Like yep. I've seen the equipment now and you're yep. right. That reader of the barcode, like it could be designed to be more robust, but it's not. So, oh, it actually is important for the label to be on reasonably straight. Like I've seen yep. some of that break down, I guess when it's in the spirit of learning and let, let's be either uh, angry or motivated. We're, 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 we're angry because we're not, <laughs> meeting the objectives that we all share, which is the best mm-hmm. patient care. It It is interesting because, you know, in Lean, we've been taught, you know, always look at the system, not the people, you know, kind of a classic, perhaps overly, overly flown up the flagpole saying. And the thing is, is that the system is made of people. And if we don't look at why people are upset, then we won't find the problems. So emotion plays a huge part of this. And what would, and I'm sure you've seen this, like when you bring the nurses and the lab techs together and they're so used to being angry about things and they, they've, they've almost self-identified with their anger. Like, you know, as part of your onboarding as a new 
uh, night shift nurse, the first thing you have to learn is to be really, really angry at the lab techs. It, it shows how much <laughs> you care like, and how good you are that you care. Yeah. And then when they get together and you say, hey, look what happens when I actually try and scan this before it goes into the centrifuge. They're like, oh, crap, that's my fault. And then and then there's this it's a very emotional moment for a lot of people uh, where they're like, number one, they've held on to this anger so hard. And so that's that's, you know, it's it's very, very tangential and then when they hit that other thing and they release that anger you know they will burst into tears they'll start laughing they'll run around the room they have any number of reactions but it's highly cathartic and beautiful to watch yeah. <laughs> well and i think that's where like you know being an outsider can help steer people through that because you don't share that history or anger or animosity and kind of say, hey, well, let's let's go look at how it works. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Let's just practically go look at how it works and then see if we can fix it. Yeah. Because you don't want to be angry anymore. Hopefully not. You know. Yeah. Well, we when we can actually fix the underlying problems, we don't we don't have to be self-righteously angry anymore. Yep. We can be yep. happy about what we've done to improve. Yep. Yep. It's it's Mark Twain all over the place. Hmm. It's just travel making you making you smarter. Yeah. <laughs> but um, and you say you know the, you make a good point. The system is made of people. I mean, what, what what I would think of in terms of what's taught through Lean, it, it, it's not don't look at the people, but but don't be hard on the people. Like be hard on the process, not hard on the people. Yep. Yeah. But I think if Dr. Deming was in the room. Forgive me, I'll try to speak on his behalf, but what I've read, what I've taken away from Dr. Deming and stories about him is a recognition that some people matter more in the system design in terms of, well, who, who is responsible? And your stories of how Deming would be exceedingly kind to the frontline employees, mm -hmm. he would start questioning middle managers, and he would be really hard on the executives because yep. to some extent, the executives do matter more in terms of system design. Um, so I think there's this question of like, well, we, there's, 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 when they say, don't be hard on the people, maybe you need to think situationally, who is more responsible for this, the current system? Mm -hmm. We challenge mm -hmm. them more. Not that they're bad people. Right. So, so in that way, like the work, the work that we, the, the work at Turner was largely, uh it the ceo peter like pushed the on button for the and basically the on button was i would like this to happen and i am not going to interfere <laughs> and then after that because it's a very large company there were lots of other leadership you know upper management positions that could and did either push the throttle forward or pull the brake back on uh, the ability of individual professionals in the New York business unit at Turner to engage their professionalism, uh, you know, to uh, to engage their agency, to engage to uh, underwrite their psychological safety, and um, uh, the interesting thing that happened while I was there was that it, like all other um verticals 
uh, construction, like all other verticals, started to transition from a lot of people who were at the company 35 or 40 years to people who would come in, work there for a while, then go off and try something else. And they're like, why, why is this happening now? Why hasn't this happened before? It's like, well, it's a global trend. But in order to keep people here, you're going to have to make them feel valued. And the only way to make someone feel valued is to actually value them. Right. Right. <laughs> that, that you're right. I mean, that's that's a feeling. It's a perception. Um, I mean, like, you were talking earlier about a leader who was very highly respected. The late Paul O'Neill was that way at Alcoa. Like when I've had opportunity uh-huh. to talk about some of what Paul O'Neill did and talked about, inevitably, like this happened many times. Someone in the audience is a former Alcoa employee. And uh-huh. I'll come up and say, thank yeah, that was completely my recollection. Like, haven't anyone come up with a story yet that says, like, well, that wasn't true where I worked. Yeah, yeah, that you wasn't know, my part of Alcoa. And so that's encouraging. But, you know, and I think back to one thing um, Paul and he always talked about is the things that everybody says, like everyone says, uh-huh. uh, like in healthcare. Um patient safety is our top priority. And Paul O'Neill would ask, well, how do you demonstrate that? If everyone says um, employees are our most important resource, like he would point to show me your employee injury data. Yep. That's what tells us if those words and in, in the state yep. of belief really turn into action, you know? Yep. And, and so like in, uh, again, for just not to keep coming back to this, but like in, in for Turner, I would look at like how quickly are your change orders processed? Uh, how many change orders did you have over the course of the project? Did the did the how many change orders did you have that were replaced later by other change orders? So the the crux of the relationships in in an Alcoa plant come down to were people able to safely get through the day? That's definitely true on a construction site. And so the recordable injury rate is a very major, uh, very major thing. Uh, but the um, but there are perhaps side effects, like you know how you know what was the amount of paperwork that you had was was did you spend thousands of hours in a room arguing about it or minutes. Did you did you avoid the overhead of conflict? Um, and you know we we can talk about tech all we want, but one doesn't have to look any farther than Elon Musk to know that you can be an incredibly horrible manager, <laughs> and that you can make mistakes that are by no means novel. Uh, and the, this is, this is a human thing. It's not an industry or a vertical thing. And, uh, if anything out of, uh, after like this weird career I've had of working with so many different types of clients, that's been my major takeaway is that every workplace I've been in has been unique and every workplace I've ever been in is individuals working in teams, creating value. And then you can just work from that kernel out. Uh, for what other unique or special instances happen after that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, I think one of those other sort of universal things is when people are working in a fear-driven environment, 
all sorts of bad things happen for the individuals and for the company. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned earlier, you know, fear is a cause of problems. And, and, and one alternative to fear is something you write about in the book. And you say, you know, every real collaboration has psychological safety. Mm-hmm. And if being respected is a feeling, mm-hmm. I think, you know, having some degree of psychological safety is also a feeling. Mm-hmm. That we each individually have. I mean, what what I'd like to dig a little bit into, like what you've learned about psychological safety. Like, how do you know how much is there? How do you work to help build it? Well, so uh, again, you you look. I would look at <laughs> when when I was an urban planner in Portland, Oregon, and we were trying to develop walkable, livable neighborhoods in Portland. I was at a press conference, and I was sitting next to the chief of police. And somebody asked me, he said, what is your number one metric for if a neighborhood is truly safe and walkable? And I said, jaywalking. If there's tons of jaywalking, then you know that people feel safe crossing the street. And obviously, the police chief, she says, Mr. Benson is not advocating jaywalking. <laughs> well, if that was our only measure, we would go start running seminars of encouraging jaywalking so that we could look <laughs> The, the so that's just of- it. Or we would tell people, you know, jaywalk. And so that's the that's the the part where I see both agency and psychological safety running into the same crap that we see every time another buzzword comes up in business. So now there's classes on how to be psychologically safe. And that just makes my head want to melt. I like it's like I'm opening the Ark of the Covenant at that point. Uh, <laughs> why, and so why, why, why is that? As, some, as somebody who has sat through a class on psychological safety and my face didn't melt off. Why, <laughs> Your I, face I'm didn't scared. melt off. I'm not, so, not looking to argue this, but I'm curious, why, why, why does that make you? So I'm sure that there's there's plenty of stuff in classes on psychological safety that's perfectly useful. Mm-hmm. But but psychological safety isn't 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 an individually obtainable thing. You know, right. it, you, you right. can't you can't go out and buy a box of psychological safety in order to have you can't right. have psychological safety without having agency. Right. You can't have agency without having not just the ability like I you can go make decisions person. You know, I could point my finger and say that, but you need the information. The right information at the right time to make a decision. You need to see other people who are your peers regularly making decisions and not getting beaten up for them. When, when you see other people being able to act professionally and that professionalism is just part of making the product, you have now officially achieved both agency and psychological safety. And when that happens, and you and I have both seen this, even, even if it's just for short periods of time, but when that happens, when people have when people can act with confidence, which is the phrase that we use in the book, when when people can act with confidence, they do. And when you even throttle that back a little bit, like let's say that's a hundred units of confidence and people are running between 90 and 100, they're just fine. But the moment you click that back to 89, they'll self-drop back to 60. So you will, you know, if the guards are punching the the inmates, you will not just say, okay, what did that person do? I won't do that thing. It's, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> right. Yeah, people right. will shut down and yeah. stop speaking up. And, and 
one bad reaction to a suggestion. Um, yeah, I mean, it could be, it, it could make someone shut down completely, or at least for mm-hmm. some period of time. And I mean, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, I love that phrase. You can't buy a box of psychological safety. I, mm-hmm. I was trying to coach somebody recently and they they talked about how they and leaders need to provide psychological safety. I'm, like, right. I'm like, you can provide lunch. <laughs> but you can't guarantee that everybody will feel satiated and happy with the meal. Because I mean, like the psychological safety is that feeling that's an outcome of what leaders do and don't do. Like when you when you speak up to challenge the status quo, is that rewarded or is that punished in some mm-hmm. awful overt, I've fired you from Twitter? <clears throat> Sorry to go back to this sort of <laughs> come back to this again, or the more subtle, you know, uh punishment of of feeling dismissed or marginalized or kind of pushed to the side of a team. Mm-hmm. It really comes down to how people feel based on mostly what leaders are doing. Yep. Well, and uh, the kind of the insidious thing here is that it it is an ecosystem uh, and upper management squelches these things by hoarding leadership as an action. And that if people are acting with confidence, if they have agency, then they're making decisions and they're doing those things that leaders used to do because everyone can engage in leadership. You don't have to belong to the leader club or, you know, have uh, 16 different nine irons in your garage. Uh, you know, you, you, anyone can be a leader at any time, depending on what the situation requires and the information that certain people might have or the inspiration that certain people might have. The, the, the scary thing is that we've had, we've had, a a whole human history of treating each other like crap. And we believe that that will always be the case. So when my wife was at Children's Hospital in Seattle, and uh, she went to an all-hands meeting when they got a new CEO who is no longer there and hasn't been there for a long time. But the new CEO came in and said, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And we're going to do this. And one of the, I think the OTPTs or somebody raised her hand and said, uh, um, can I please have a living wage? <laughs> and the thing, and the, the, the CEO said, you know, working at children's hospital is a calling. Oh gosh. And my wife just oh. left. That doesn't pay she the rent. Just got up and no. left, and then her her time there was done, uh, and it was because it, it that was an obvious dismissal of both human need and total disregard for the mission of the organization. And so, if you're gonna, if you're in an organization that cares for people, you better care for the people in the organization, and that was strangely enough. That was strangely enough an unexpectedly central goal of Turner Construction. 
So, I mean, we expect it from like a children's hospital, but I really didn't expect it from, from Turner. And it was a challenge because, like I said, it wasn't an historic commodity that they traded in. But, but it, was, it was really interesting and even beautiful at times watching how they struggled with that and tried to make it, tried to make it real in that environment. Yeah. So again, Jim's latest book is The Collaboration Equation, Strong Professionals, Strong Teams, Strong Delivery. I want, I want to play a little what if with you here, because you, know, you, you mentioned the situations where a collection of really strong professionals doesn't become a strong team. They don't accomplish what they're trying to do. So let's maybe just, you know, talk MBA for a minute. They're, yeah. you know, like the Portland Trailblazer. No, um, no, I'm sorry. Gosh, the Golden State Warriors. There was a okay. brain cramp. I mean, that super team won a title. I think even after they added Kevin Durant to make it a, super, a more super, super mm-hmm. team. The Miami Heat, with their famous big three, including LeBron James, won a couple titles. but they had predicted famously in their opening, you know, um, event that they were going to win, like not four, but five, but six, but like they thought they were going to win every mm-hmm. single year. The New Jersey Nets, the Brooklyn Nets, I'm dating myself. The Brooklyn Nets have failed with varying versions of super team, including um, Kevin Durant and others. So uh, Steve Nash got fired recently. If Jim mm-hmm. Benson were installed as the coach of an NBA super team that's got a couple of future Hall of Famers, four mm-hmm. of the five starters are all-stars, some of whom may be on the tail end of their career. Like what sort of Ted would no, it probably wouldn't be Ted Lasso we, but let's say you were thrown into some <laughs> challenges, Jim. Could the ideas from the collaboration equation help those strong professionals? act together as a strong team, even if you don't know all the ins and outs of the NBA game. Right, right. So the the answer is, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, next question. Um, no. the, 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 the interesting thing there is, is density of narcissism. Mm. That's <laughs> so so in that. most teams that I've worked with, there has usually been a, a a narcissism cluster, and that narcissism cluster is usually in the uh, is is in the upper management of this. But here, the narcissism cluster would actually be in the production end of this. Usually, what happens in the production end of this is there are people who have just given up, and they are so jaded that 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 trying to break through. Or there are people who have figured out the, I guess the worst ones are the people who have figured out how to do just enough not to get shot. (laughs) Um, So they, they, they never fly above or below the radar. They're just like right there going boop, boop, boop. And, and, and no one, they're never criticized and they're never, never praised. Those are the hardest ones because those ones have found like the perfect procedural elements of safety and they will fight any change you bring to them because their flight path will change. And they're like, that's risk city for me. For the people who are super jaded, usually if you can just, you know, express to them that they're hurting and that there's a good reason for it, it's usually, you're usually able to bring them back up to activity because the only reason they're jaded is because they were super interested to begin with and had been uh, learned helplessness t- into into the gutter. So in a situation like you're describing, where you have a bunch of superstars 
uh, I will go back to a time when there was basketball in Seattle and we had a super team and that super team routinely unperformed. And then one year they got really angry and they all left. And then we won. (laughs) And that happened repeatedly. It happened on the Seahawks. It happened with the Sonics. It happened with the Mariners that when we had super teams and they started to fail, when we got rid of the people who were not team members, everything became better. So uh, I would probably be unpopular if I went to a, a market like that and I would ask the team what the team needed. And the more that certain people said I need as opposed to we need, uh, I would say things like, I'm glad you need that, Kevin. <laughs> but what do you think the team team needs? Uh, does the team need to control the ball more? Does the team need to not feel guilty if they didn't pass it to you <laughs> does the team not feel like you are the team and uh and so one of the beauties that you and i find in being the outside voice for these types of things is that we can say things like that but if i go in and i'm suddenly the gm of that team now i've got a board of directors that will beat the living crap out of me if I get rid of the person that that sells them all the jerseys. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so that comes back to the question of what is the primary objective here? There are some sports franchises in different cities that are criticized for uh, being, you know, a family business. They're not owned by somebody with, uh, you know, uh, you know, someone who's not a billionaire. And I think of the um, Cincinnati Reds at one point, the Arizona Cardinals of like, your primary objective isn't winning, it's to make money. You know, it's not that throwing, and we've seen how many franchises throw tons of money at the problem that doesn't guarantee winning. Um, right. But, um, I mean, it's fascinating. And then we, see, then we see small ball, right? So, yeah. But the, so when you, when you talk about like money ball in the new analytics, I mean, like for a baseball team, instead of looking at, you know, some of these, these newfangled statistics, what there was no reason for the Mariners to have done so well this year mm-hmm. but what happened was they had like literally when you talk to the Mariners now they're they just like each other and so if you talk to any Mariner like I, I was watching this over the course of this year that any Mariner when they were interviewed always talked about someone else on the team so if you were like the hero for the for the game and the the they come up at the end of the game and they say, you know, hey, you caught that ball or you hit it out of the park or grand slam or whatever, they will always talk about other people on the team. And and when in the playoffs there was this part where we had a lead, we lost the lead, so the starting pitcher had lost the ability to say that that was a win for him. And we got the lead back and the the other pitcher then pitched a really great game the rest of the game. And the pitcher who lost the lead didn't go clomp off to the, to the locker room and get pissed. Uh, They were like super excited by everything that was happening. And 
that's that's what allows people to act with confidence. It's not saying, you know, should I should I, you know, should I pass it to Shaq? Um and so when we do when we when we work with a with a team and the system that's in the in the book we get the team to sit down and we say you know how is it that you work who is it that you want to be how do you how do you relate to each other and your customers what information do you need and when how does that information travel take all that stuff together and say okay how do we implement this and again, most of that happens during the week. Like people say, let's just stop doing this or let's decide to work with this. But the beauty of it comes where you were talking earlier about the silos, like ones that even feel very different, like lab and ER. And you get the people in the ER without the lab people even being there to recognize that they need them, that, that the silo that the silo is a management contrivance and the work, the patient, the blood, the plasma <laughs> requires these other people and you and, and you. So the flow of work isn't your team. Your team is just part of the company which processes that work. And you need to get over your own damn self <laughs> and 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 embrace the fact that in order to provide the best value possible, you need to you need to work with other people. And hopefully middle management hasn't been incentivized to not allow you to do that. Yeah. Which they often are. Yeah. But I mean, how many times about getting over your damn self? I, I think it still it comes back to um narcissists and and if if Ted Lasso, if the Ted Lasso type coach were the key to a team succeeding, maybe it's really the therapist Sharon who worked with him. But like, do you do you bring in a Sharon even if you're not hiring her to be coach? Is there some sort of psychological assessment, some sort of narcissism index, or can you just tell? Like, I'm going deep on Ted Lasso with it, <laughs> without even asking you if you've watched it. Have you? I, ha I have not, but I've but I. It's like a contact high. <laughs> you know, there, there, there was a player. I've seen so many clips and talked to so many people about it. I feel like I watched it. But um, I, I think it's fun to look for analogies here because in, in season one, they had a player, Jamie Tart, who was uh -huh. by far the most talented player on the team, but he was a jerk and everybody hated him. And, you know, they they got rid of him. Um, and there's this this question of like, are we better, you know, are they better off without him? Now, without him, they actually lost and if i'm remembering right they got um relegated but yep. um you know i think of the san antonio spurs is an example of i think you know coach greg popovich trying to create a team environment those teams that won championships had three hall of famers and tony uh -huh. parker tim duncan okay yep. four david robinson was there kind of and yep. Monty ginobili but like I've heard criticism of Tony Parker, but they, they seem like a decidedly unselfish bunch mm -hmm. that didn't win every year, but, but won as much as a team that would arguably have more talent. And, a, and who knows, who, who knows the side effects of that? So, you know, has anybody done a, you know, four year longitudinal study saying, you know, here we have like, Bruce Aarons, who's like a jerk uh, coach, 
uh, how many divorces happen on his team versus how many divorces happen on the San Antonio Spurs or the Seattle Mariners or wherever is, was that more humane environment, even if it didn't lead to a perfect win all the time, which it statistically can't because there's a lot of teams, (laughs) Uh, but if they performed better, Part of that performance was also sending them home happier to have a job, be be part of that group, uh, know that if they come to work and something's bothering them, that other people will be there to prop them up and vice versa. Um, that, uh, that the humane aspects of work go beyond the production or the productivity, but to the sustainability of the team and the organization as a whole. You know, less doctor visits, less heart attacks, less people being punched in the throat, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> so are we being treated as human beings or resources? Seems like the more successful companies, people are going to feel like they're treated like human beings. Yeah. Well, and so and treated is a is a is a word <laughs> um you know it's, it's like do you do you feel included it's like well or do you feel heard that's my 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 least favorite business saying is people want to feel heard no people don't want to feel heard people want to be heard right <laughs> I want, I, 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 a corollary to that my phrase i hate is i i want people to feel like they had input i'm like no you give them input <laughs> <laughs> it's not a game about creating a feeling. <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah. You you can be hooked on a feeling, but you have to be high on believing. That's <laughs> the second line of the song is important. Uh, um, that uh, that the the clarity isn't something that management creates. It's something that everybody has to has to literally lay a foundation for and build together. And that's why you have the obeya. You know, you don't have the abeya there just because, you know, people need to see statistics. It's because that is it, that all of that information is a sign of professional respect that you're constantly making this kind of low touch request for not just input, but but participation and the, you're bringing your value to my problem. And it's it sounds like such crap sometimes because there's just like all those words are in there, but it's just so practical. You get a bunch of people, you ask them what you need, you make a room that gives them what they need, and then they go and do stuff. It's it, <laughs> it's we we have all these flowery ways of putting it, but literally that's all we're doing. We're saying what do you need? Okay, here it is. Go. You can make that. Seem, I mean, it's not not even just seem. I mean, that that simplifies things greatly. Man, yeah, that, that's insightful. Yeah, and it's it's that doesn't make it easy, right? You know, right. Uh, you know, if you think about if you think about like if you have a team of ten people, that's like a thousand arranged marriages, mm-hmm. <laughs> a thousand arranged group marriages, and so all of a sudden you've got these people you never thought you'd be involved with that you need to communicate with, you need to make sure they're okay, you need to make sure that work gets done, you need to blah, 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 blah. And it's really interesting for me because when we do any of these, the first thing that people ask for is better onboarding, Mm -hmm. which 
is a beautiful way of people saying, I actually still don't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that happens a lot. <laughs> well, Jim, um, gosh, there's so much more we could talk about. I want to oh, yes. sign you up to do uh, a second episode at some point for one, you know, as I get further into the book and there's a couple of phrases I'm going to leave on the cutting room floor today here, uh, humble okay. hubris. Yep. And then something else that jumped out at me, Benson's law of limited thinking. <laughs> I feel like we could probably do a whole episode just based off of those, those couple of things right there. Indeed. In fact, I've already started working on the humble hubris book. <laughs> <laughs> unpack that concept. So let's have yeah. a conversation. Uh, I, I propose doing this. So I, I hope with some humble hubris on my part. <laughs> that you might agree that that's a good idea. And it seems like- Yes, indeed. Um, the book, again, uh, by Jim Benson, The Collaboration Equation, Strong Professionals, Strong Teams, Strong Delivery. You know, in, 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 in a, well, so for one, tell us about the cover of the book. We've got the sunflower that's like- Right, is going from the current, current state of most businesses, which is necrotic, mm. into something that is growing and flourishing. So we read. So we read the picture in that direction. <laughs> yes, from left to right. Yes, becoming a, <laughs> becoming a thriving, blooming, beautiful sunflower. Yes. Yes. Okay. That's I like the imagery there and uh, the petal that actually floats under the back of the book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're gonna judge. We're gonna judge the book by both sides of the cover, Jim. Good deal. Um, yeah. The the layout for this book, man. The guy that I got to do the layout. He's an artist. This is just it. I am so grateful for how beautiful this particular book looks. It's a. Uh, it, it almost makes me cry. No, in fact, it did when I first I first got the first PDF. I was literally just like, I can't believe this is happening. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm you know I'm, I'm I'm glad you did it. I I can believe that you did it, and it's not, it looks like you found great people to partner with here. In in a nutshell, here's the final question. Like, I mean, who who do you recommend? the book for target audiences. I know it's not just about construction. It's yeah. not just free tech companies, but, but who do you yeah. think would get the most out of the book? Yeah. So, so on purpose, there's, there's stories from finance and world government and all sorts of different groups that we've worked with uh, because like I said, collaboration is, is for everyone. There's also conversations in there from uh, like in the leadership section, I talk about these two young women who were level ones, like the the intro of the intro of people at Turner Construction who who started a project with massive change. And it was just all them, just their leadership. So if you are a person that works with other people, <laughs> an individual that works in teams to create value, and you are either of a management level or a middle management level or an individual contributor, but your goal is to get your team to work better with the other teams in your business and with each other, then the book is for you. Um, the it's It tells a lot of stories and it uses real world examples to show that this stuff isn't theoretical This is, and it is all practical. I went out of my way to take almost all of the things that were not practical and just me complaining <laughs> out of the book. 
And as Mark knows, uh, I can I can rant with the best of them. So uh, um, that is who, that is who the book is for. Uh, and and currently, the purchase people who have written back about purchasing it, they literally are all up and down the the chain of command. Well, good. Um, thank you, Jim, for collaborating on the podcast and everything that we've collaborated on before. I hope people go check it out. The collaboration. Oh, wait, wait, I actually, actually, because uh, I'm a really lousy self-seller, I just realized what I should have said. So if you have started or are part of or have been subjected to a lean or agile transformation that has failed, it has failed because you didn't do the stuff in this book. <laughs> this book is the precursor to doing any transformation or any continuous improvement project at all. You need to build the culture of continuous improvement and not just assume that the tools are going to give them to you. That's a great close. I'm going to just, <laughs> I'm going to leave it right there. So uh, Jim Benson uh, joining us again, looking forward to you joining us again. Thanks a lot, Jim. All right. Thanks, Mark. Well, thanks again to Jim. Thanks to you for listening. To learn more about Jim, his company, his new book, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 463. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.